0: Every single one of us has that person that when we see an email from them or their name on caller ID, we start to cringe a bit. All of us need to interact with people that don't bring us joy. But how do we keep those relationships from crowding out what's most important? On this episode, how to limit time with the wrong people. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 547. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing Human Potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stehoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Of course, so much about leadership is about our relationships with others. How do we spend time and invest in the right situations and in the right people. And also, there's that aspect of leadership of how do we limit time with the wrong people and the wrong relationships. It's so much complexity that we all have to deal with in that daily balance. Today, I'm so glad to be able to share a conversation with you on someone who's just such an expert in this area is going to help us to take some practical steps forward. I'm so pleased to introduce Carrie Newhoff to you. He is a former lawyer, a best-selling leadership author, a podcaster, and also the CEO of his own organization. Kerry speaks to leaders around the world about leadership, change, and personal growth. He writes a widely read leadership blog at carrynewhoff.com and also hosts the top-rated Kerry Newhoff Leadership Podcast where he interviews some of today's best leaders. His content is accessed over a million times a month. He's the author of several best-selling books, including most recently At Your Best, How to Get Time, Energy, and Priorities Working in Your Favor. Carrie, what a pleasure
1: to meet you. Hey, it's a pleasure to meet you too, Dave. Thank you so much for having me and congratulations on all your success and the way you get to serve leaders every day. You're making a big difference. Well,
0: the same to you. I have known of your work for a long time. I've listened to your show before. I'm so Mm -hmm. grateful for all the work you're doing. And this conversation today is one that when I read your book and I was thinking about what would be so helpful to the folks in our audience, it's, it's, it's this question of how do we limit time with the wrong people, right? I think most of us have run into this uh, daily in some cases. And uh, before we get into it, I, I love the story in the book that you tell about your grandmother and a call oh. that she would get every morning. Could you share that with us?
1: Oh, yeah. That was a fun story to write about. I hadn't thought about it in years, but I had a really close relationship with my uh, grandma and grandpa on my mom's side. And we moved about 300 miles away. We had grown up next to door to each other till I was about 10. And then when I was 10, we moved about 300 miles away. So we'd go down and, and stay with my grandmother for part of the summer. And she had this friend, I think in the book, I'll call her Nancy, just in case there are any living relatives. (laughs) Nancy Nancy would call my grandmother and you got to put yourself back in the what would have been late 70s, early 80s. So there's no cell phones. The phone was a device that sat on a wall, was like screwed into the wall and yet a phone cord. Right. So you really had no freedom. And she always would pull up a chair, sit down, talk to Nancy. Nancy would call every morning at 10 AM. So I'm there as a 10, 11, 12, 13 year old, you know, at my grandmother's house for the week. And Nancy would call and grandma was always really gracious with her. And it would be pretty clear that that Nancy had a lot to say and uh, and 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 there was not much content to it. It just, you know, all day to say it. And grandma would want the call to wrap up, but she was too polite to really say, well, you know, I think this is it. So she would give little hints like, Well, Nancy, you know, that was nice to talk today. Can we do it again tomorrow? And then Nancy would keep going. And after a while, when all the hints failed, she would, I'd look at her, she'd be rolling her eyes, kind of like wrap it up, wrap it up, wrap it up. She wouldn't wrap it up. So grandma would go, can you go outside and call me? So I'd go outside, come up the steps on the back porch, swing open the door and go, grandma, grandma, can you help? And she'd go, Nancy, I got to go. Carrie needs me. Click. And that was it. And like, don't we all need a moment like that in our lives? Haven't you wanted to get out of those meetings? You don't know how to end. And no one's picking up on your cues. I mean, that's work. That's life. So that's what I learned from my grandmother, Dave. Yeah. Well, I'm laughing
0: because I mean, on one hand, I think we've all been there and I think we've all we've all tried tactics (laughs) like that with varying levels of success, Uh, uh, sometimes personally, and sometimes professionally too, right? I'm, I'm thinking back to one of our past guests on the show talking about literally diving under his desk <laughs> when, when he'd see someone <laughs> walking by. Out, right? <laughs> yeah, because it, it is it is just this human challenge. And one of my favorite lines in the book is this one. You write, the people who want your time are rarely the people who should have your time. And the people mm. who should get most of your premium time rarely
1: ask for it. When you think about that, what's the implication for leaders? It's huge. I think anybody listening to this podcast in leadership can relate to the meetings that number one, you find not very energizing. Number two, you are, and they're not energizing because here's, here's how most of us spend our time meeting with people. We always meet with our low performers. It's the guy who shows up late, the, uh, sales person, who's underperforming and not hitting their targets. It's the person who's doing really sloppy work, right? So call them into your office. Okay, um, we got to talk about this and you try to coach them along. And then we know the cycle, right? It's Groundhog Day. And the next week you're back in the office and notice you were late again last week at the meeting or, hey, we're still not closing any deals here. What's going on? You're not helping them. That's very draining. The second thing is, There's usually a long line of people who want your time and they're not the most strategic to spend it with. You've got that crank client who just keeps calling and calling and emailing and emailing. And now they have your cell. So they're texting you and you're like, ah, meanwhile, all of us have top performers. You know, your best salesperson, if you lead a not-for-profit, your best volunteer, your top donor, Uh, if you're an executive, your best manager. When you spend time with your best manager, your best people, your best donor, your best salesperson, that's so energizing, but they never ask you for your time. It's always the underperformers you should meet with or the kind of non-sequiturs and non-starters who always want your time or the drama kings and queens who always have a new crisis and, and dump it there. And so your time gets eaten up with the people you should not be spending your time with. Meanwhile, the people you love to spend time with and who would benefit from it Uh, they never get your time. And that includes your family too, because by the time you get home, there was a Deloitte study that said 82% of all executives (laughs) come home physically and mentally drained every single day. Why? Because of a lot of the stuff we've already talked about. And you get home and who gets cheated? The people that you love the most. Yeah,
0: yeah, indeed. I mean, I've run into that in my own work. And one of the things you illustrate in the book is just thinking about, your energy level at different times of the day. And for mm. a lot of us, that energy level tends to line up with our work hours and our professional work. And then we get into a situation where we're not putting that time into the place we really want to. And the other line that really leapt out at me is, uh, you write, so many leaders have nothing left to give because they've given it all away to people who honestly weren't helped by the interaction. And I think about that too, and it's really true in a lot of cases, like the people who demand so much of that time aren't necessarily doing much better after you invest that time. And I'm wondering, as you think about this and as you've worked with leaders over the years, how do you
1: know, what are the indicators you see when you're not helping? So one of probably the best indicator, and this isn't my term, this comes from uh, the psychologist John Townsend. He says, there are people with flat learning curves, and you definitely have some in your life and you have some in your company. And those are the people that you meet with more than once and nothing ever changes. So let's pick on the salesperson that just isn't performing. And so you coach them. You really, you know, the first meeting, you're always pretty enthusiastic. You're like, all right, Carrie, we're going to turn this around. It's going to be okay. And why don't you go out and try this, that, and the other things. So they go out, they make some more cold calls. They nurture their existing list. They do a few things that are supposed to move the needle and, and you give them your best stuff. Come back the next week. It's like, well, how'd it go? Did you make some more cool calls. Well, no, you know, I got busy and I was kind of tired. And then, and then nobody ever answers those anyway. Okay. Did you follow up some of your best leads? Like just give them a touch point, like say, Hey, thanks. Just want to make sure everything's going. Okay. Well, I made one call, but you know, the other ones, things got in the way. It's like, they didn't do the work, mm-hmm. which is really frustrating. And so you kind of, you've still got some hope for them. So you kind of coach them again. And then you get to the point where you just realize, okay, these these people have like flat learning curves. Another sign can be what I call the drama king or the drama queen. There's always something, you know, well, this person said this or this person said that. By the way, this often happens in your family too. So you sit down, you give them some really good advice. And the next week, maybe if that crisis goes away, there's a new crisis. And, you know, have you got a fire you're fighting every week in your life? Probably at some point you have to wake up and go, wait, am I an arsonist? Because life is dramatic, but it's not that dramatic. So there are some people you're going to meet who honestly, they just go from crisis to crisis to crisis. And and they, they want your sympathy more than they want your help. And for most of us, it's like, well, that's not in my job description. That's not what I'm here for. And yet those are the people who dominate our time. So I think those are some of the dynamics. And the big thing would be there is no cause and effect. Uh, One of my therapists said to me years ago, Carrie, relationships are mutual. Healthy relationships are mutual. There's a give and take. And there's a world of difference between coaching the young leader or the young person on your team who really is just starting out and they're going to get it wrong a few times, but they come back hungry. They tried. Maybe they failed a little bit. They got, they got some success over here. But then they tell you, hey, so I did this. It didn't work. What's the next tip? Okay, try that. Okay, I went out and tried that. Guess what? It worked, right? There should be cause and effect. The perpetually draining people. And another, another test would be, and this is very subjective. Feel free to ask more on that or push back or whatever. When you look at the appointment in your calendar and you see their name, you deflate. Mm -hmm. You're just like, oh, yeah, not her. Oh, not him. That's probably a sign that you've got one of those energy sucking relationships happening. And at that point, and this is the weird thing, you're not helping them and they're not helping you. That doesn't mean that they can't be helped, but probably, you know, we only have two sons, but there have been seasons in my life where I've been absolutely the wrong coach for one of my sons. And my wife kind of picks up the slack and she has better luck with them. And then there are other seasons where she finds she's hitting her head against the wall and I can step in and help. So you don't have to be the savior to the world or to your entire organization. There might be other people in the company who can help them, or there might be this might be the wrong company for them too. That's another possibility.
0: I so appreciate everything you just said. And I'm, I'm thinking about this through the lens of my own life and career over the years and I've had better luck, by and large, navigating this in my personal life. Hmm. Professionally, I found it to be a little more complicated uh, because unlike in our personal lives and friends and family and all that, I mean, I, I I know folks struggle with this personally as well, too. But, you know, we don't often get to pick our coworkers or or, yeah. or our employees yeah. or the person we picked wasn't the person we anticipated that we got. Right. right. And this is a really difficult. Delicate balance from a leadership standpoint, because I know so many of us have the heart and literally espouse the open door policy. We want to be there to be helpful and to be coach like and to support people. And yet, I think almost any every organization I've worked in, there's been someone like you described that they show up on the calendar mm-hmm. and like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like you know where that's like, going. No, not today. Yeah. <laughs> How do you? Balance that today is leading an organization. You're a CEO and, and you've also been a pastor of leading a mm-hmm. large organization. Um, when you run into that, what do you do to kind of navigate that both that that heart and that desire to help, but at the same time, really not getting bogged down in that relationship that isn't going to go anywhere?
1: Well, for many years, I I didn't do it well at all. I felt like my grandmother <laughs> stuck on that phone with her friend Nancy time after time after time and you know often out of our failures we kind of have the biggest lessons so let Mm -hmm. me just say if you're there totally understand that and you're right i did serve in a church for two decades and You want to be the pastor telling people that you're not going to meet with them, like that sets you up to win popularity contests. That's that's, that's like they're like, "Wait a minute, didn't you go to school to not be that way?" It's like, "Well, I was a lawyer first, you know, so so I did learn some of that." Which there's a whole conversation there, perhaps for us too. (laughs) No, it is, but but here's the challenge. This is a limit on their growth, and it's also a limit on your growth and the growth of the organization. So, how do you handle that? You see, because you have a lot of, I call them frequent flyers, right? People have the same problem every week, but they don't change. They have that flat learning curve. There's a new drama every day. There's a new problem that only you can solve. And a lot of that is very unhealthy. If you really unpack that from a therapeutic standpoint, there might be kind of a code dependency there. There could be a learned helplessness there. There could be, or honestly, they're just a low performer that isn't serving you or your organization particularly well. So what do you do? What I have learned to do through a lot of coaching and a lot of trial and error is when I'm faced with a situation like that, first of all, I I lead something, you know, a little bit bigger these days. So we have walls and multiple levels and you know by the time you get to me it's been filtered through and my team is so good at helping people. So if you have a team for those of you leading in larger organizations, you want to make sure that your team is great at that. So yeah, our content as you indicated in the intro gets accessed by leaders about a million and a half times a month, which is a lot of contact. We send out an email almost daily to 81,000 leaders. That's a lot of replies. We have trained my team on how to help people. Because if, if, if a 10th of that came through to me, I'm dead in the water. Like I'm finished. I can't, I can't serve the very people who I get the privilege of serving. And so the reason here, here's a really perverse logic. If you can follow this, the reason I can't help everybody who comes to me for help is I would have to stop helping them through my podcast. So I realized the greatest value I bring is not my one-on-one coaching. So you have to get over the hero complex that you have to solve every problem that comes to you. And of course, if I started doing individual coaching day after day after day, I couldn't have interviews with world-class leaders. I couldn't write the content that I'm writing and the whole thing would start to collapse. So I remind myself, this is my motivation. This is a limit on you helping more people. Like I am not going to be able to do my job and help people, let alone care for my family. If I keep doing this. Secondly, what I might do, if you have an individual frequent flyer, let's say a coaching or mentoring relationship, or either an employment, maybe an employment relationship that isn't working particularly well, is you just sit down and say, look, you know, we have been meeting now for about three months or three years or fill in the blanks. And I'm just getting a sense that, that, that maybe this isn't the best use of your time or my time. It seems like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like we're in a situation where we just keep going over the same issues over and over again. Would, would you agree? I mean, is that your experience? And if that's the case, do you think, number one, that we can maybe stop meeting this way or reduce the frequency? Like you'll have to fill out what's, what's best for you. You don't always have choice. Or reduce the frequency. Or do you think perhaps somebody else addressing this could help you make progress faster? And that's how you begin to open the exit door to a relationship that's going nowhere. When you started having that
0: kind of a conversation with individuals and beginning that language, I'm guessing there have been times that you've had a conversation like that and someone has really responded um, feeling very hurt or feeling very surprised. Mm -hmm. When that's happened, what have you found that helps them to begin to work through that and then to take the next step to the to the next relationship or the thing that's going to be more helpful to them or the colleague who be, would better support them.
1: What's worked? Well, let me go to the worst case scenario, Dave. First of all, it doesn't always go well. It doesn't. And what you'll discover with relatively healthy people who want to get better, it'll be fine. They'll be like, some of them will be relieved because they didn't like it either, or they felt a lot, maybe they went home and complained to their partner about you. I don't (laughs) don't know. (laughs) So, so some of them will be quite happy. Others will go, you know what? You're right. I really like you. I appreciate you. Let's stay friends, but this isn't helping, or we're going to meet once a quarter or once a month or something like that, reduce the frequency. But there's a number of unhealthy people that it will never go well. And that would be in the, the category of what I would call toxic people or toxic behavior. And uh, unfortunately, there's, there's a lot of them. So my responsibility is to not be one of those toxic people. And at a certain point, you just have to, you kind of have to release them. And you're like, I did as far as it depended on me, I did everything I could in my case, because of my own faith perspective out of love and out of trying to help them. And I wasn't the one to help them. You know, it was funny. I I, uh, was out with a friend recently and she mentioned the name of a woman who got very angry with me and left our organization about 15 years ago. And it didn't matter what I did. I couldn't help this woman. And uh, my friend said to me, she said, you know, I talked to so-and-so and and she was just asking about this. And I I realized as we got into the conversation, she is still hanging on to hurt 15 years later. And Mm. listen, I went through all the steps to try to reconcile this. I hadn't thought about her in about three or four years. Mm -hmm. So it just tells you that some people, because of the pain level in their lives, are just condemned to living this like pain cycle. The the sad part for her is she still seems to be in it, from what I can tell. The happy part for me is that no longer dominates my life. And you have to make a decision, because clearly I wasn't helping her. And it looks like perhaps she's one of those people who doesn't want help, who needs the drama in her life. And that's really sad to say out loud, but I think it's a reality of human life. And I think here's, here's another principle, Dave, that really gets me thinking. Often we think that is how it's going to go. Now, that's one case out of the last 20 years where I've let someone go like that, maybe. But we all think that's going to happen the moment I raise the issue. And so we won't have the conversation. Whereas for 99% of the people, it's going to go way better than that. So why not have the conversation? You'll be helping them and helping yourself. And even firing anybody in business knows this. If you fire your worst customers, that's a good day. They didn't like your product anyway. Why do you keep trying to retain them? You know, the person who always complains about your food at the restaurant, the person who the price is always too much money. As Seth Godin would say, okay, they don't get the joke. It's not for you. That's fine. That's fine. And, And then you focus on the people who want to be helped and great things can start to happen. Plus your energy level goes up. And you know, I talk about dividing your day in, in the book into green, yellow, and red zones. Green when your energy is at your best, red when it's at its worst, and yellow sort of the in-between times. And most of us only have three to five green zone hours in a day. I had one executive who pre-read the book. He leads a half-billion-dollar company. And he said, if I get one of those problem people in my green zone for even five minutes my entire week turns red it just ruins everything and i'm like oh yeah we've all been there we've all been there yeah you know i'm so glad you said that and you
0: mentioned daniel pink's work in your book and his research of looking at the different times of the day which is fascinating yeah. and I, I i loved you know his research when he was on the show talking about that and now taking the next step to think about it from if i do need to handle situations Where I'm going to be connecting with someone that is going to be a drain on me and that is going to take that energy away. Like you said, like a lot of us generally know (laughs) who that's going to be, right? Uh, And so being also intentional about like, when do I, to the extent I can control that, when do I talk to those people? And is it going to be at the time of the day that I can really get the most done? I'm at my best energy level or do I want to perhaps put that conversation at a time of day when I'm not likely to interrupt a lot more high value, high result activities that I could be doing? And just being a little bit strategic about that, even if you still got those people in your work life or your personal life and you can't necessarily change what we were just talking about, even adjusting a little bit can make a big difference. I know for me, like if I get into email at the <laughs> time, I mean, thinking about like just random stuff. If if I get into email before like a really deep work session. And just depending on what comes in, I could go down a rabbit hole for an hour, hour and a half. And all of a sudden I've
1: completely blown my
0: productivity for the entire
1: day. Same thing here, right? Oh, you're totally right. It's a very perceptive question. So yeah, I do divide, uh, encourage readers, leaders to divide their day into three zones, green, yellow, red. If you're familiar with Cal Newport's work or any time blocking activity or David Allen, right? You only have about three to five productive hours in a day. And that's actually scientifically proven now. Daniel Pink has helped us show that. And your performance diminishes. So for a lot of leaders, disproportionate number of leaders, that's morning hours. Some are night owls. Great, more power to you. I'll be in bed. Thanks very much. Others (laughs) peak midday. Uh, Are you morning, evening, or uh, midday for yourself?
0: Over the years, I I used to be a little more night owl. These days, more
1: morning for sure. More morning. Yeah. Yeah, It seems to be like a leadership profile for a lot of people. It's, It's not a right answer. You just have to know your answer. So whenever that is, I would suggest not using your green zone unless it is the final conversation because you have limited energy. It waxes and wanes over the course of the day. Green, yellow, red zone. Red zone is when, by the way, you're really exhausted and need caffeine to even stay awake. For me, that's four to six in the afternoon. It's like, kill me now. I'm ready to go out. Okay, I'm done. And then yellow is everything in between. I would suggest yellow zone. If you have a perpetual, let's say you don't have a lot of authority and autonomy to do anything in your job. And this person is going to be on your calendar forever. And you don't have control over that. I would put them in your yellow zone when your energy is not at its best and not at its worst, because you're right. You are spending a limited quantity every day, a limited quantity of time and a limited amount of energy. And I feel generally like my phone does. I wake up with 100% charge and then slowly, depending on the day and what I'm doing, the battery just goes down. And by four o'clock, I need to be plugged in with something. And so if I'm a writer, I'm a content creator for a living, whether you're a strategic planner, an accountant doing PNL or revenue forecasting, whatever you happen to be doing, you know, that is deep work as Cal Newport says. And when you get interrupted, that takes your most productive window out. So then if you're using your most productive time to do your least productive things, you finish that exhausting meeting. It takes you an hour to even mentally recover from that. And then you've got this big report you're working on, and now you can't even think straight. You just got brain fog. That's a big mistake. So the best thing, and if you're a morning person, this is fantastic. You get it done early in the day, get your most important work done, and then you kind of move forward. And even putting it on your calendar, I am meeting with you know, Jack or whoever it is at two o'clock this afternoon, which would be my yellow zone, even putting it on your calendar, knowing it's going to happen, writing down a game plan in advance so you know what you're going to say. Now that's done. So when the morning of the the meeting comes, you can say, oh, I don't have to worry about that until like 1.30. So now I'm focused fully on the most important tasks. That is what it means to be at your best. And most of us spend those time windows unstrategically every day. And then 4 30 rolls around. We're exhausted. We're going home, like that Deloitte study, mentally and physically depleted. Our most important work remains unfinished, which is why our laptop opens up at eight o'clock. We're trying to get everything done. And then you just get up the next day and you repeat that cycle, which is why so many people are burning out.
0: Yeah, indeed. No, thanks so much for that. And you know, I don't know if you said this explicitly in the book, but one of the things that I heard reading it is. If you look at this from the other side too, one way to do better at this is to be really intentional about spending time with the right people too, because if you have those relationships in the right places, in the green zones especially, that can really help you to make a more affirmative choice that way. And Carrie, clearly you have done a great job at this. I mean, you have such a successful business, you've been uh, such a successful pastor, you've got great personal relationships, you can just tell by reading, reading the book. I'm curious what's worked for you in being able to proactively
1: get those right relationships into your time and attention and make some of those asks. So I made this shift about 15 years ago, and thank you, Dave, but I made this shift about 15 years ago, and I started to work on techniques that would help get the frequent flyers off my schedule, the people who want help but never seem to get help, no matter how hard you try. So I started to move them off my calendar. And then I realized, and this happened while I was directly in day-to-day ministry, you know, I looked at a list of top donors and I realized I haven't met with half of those people in ages Uh. and they were giving sacrificial amounts of money. Now, what you'll realize, and this is true for anybody in business, in law, it doesn't matter where you are, your top performers never ask for your time. They mm-hmm. never ask. They so never true. cause problems. They're always on time or early. They they deliver or over deliver on their results and they never bug you. It's like, hey, Dave, I know you're busy. Not going to bother you. Just want to let you know we got that sale. You're like, wow, that's amazing. Or somebody drops by your office in ministry leaves you a check for $10,000. We really believe in the work you're doing. By the way, I never accepted money directly. That always went to finance. But, you know, just metaphorically speaking, And you're like, oh, that's awesome. And they never bother you. You know, the critics rarely contribute and the contributors rarely criticize. It's another Mm. principle. And so what I realized is I've got to free up time for my people time, which is a limited quantity of time. I need to meet with my best people, not my worst. So that staff member who always comes in late, I mean, if you need to fire that person or move them around or just say, this is unacceptable or get them to change their behavior and don't spend your time on that Take your top producer out to lunch and say, hey, I wanna meet with you next Wednesday. You free for lunch. And they'd be like, why, what's up? Nothing, just wanna meet with you and say thank you for the great job you're doing. Now, think about when you see that appointment on your calendar, you're excited. It's like, I get to have lunch with Justin. That's amazing. I'm so excited. Every time we get together, it's so good. They're energized. And probably if you do that on a repeated basis, they're gonna do better. They're gonna produce more. So what all of this is, is it's an application of the Pareto principle to people, right? Most of us spend 80% of our time on the people who give us 20% of our results, those bottom performers, if you want to use that label. The, the challenge is to flip it, to spend 80% of your time with the people who present 80% of your results. And when they give you 80% of your results and you spend 80% of your time with them, it becomes a virtuous loop. You love meeting with them. They get better every time they meet with you. You actually get better every time they meet with you. And by eliminating those those non-performing people or the people I can't help for the most part off my calendar. And if you have a compassionate gene, which I hope you do, then say, I'm going to make one of those slots a month. I'm going to go to bat for somebody who never seems to respond once a month or once a week. But that's it. That's all you do. And you just leave that off the rest of your time. You're spending it in productive territory. That's how you grow. So when my calendar became open and the frequent flyers were no longer on it, that's how I got to connect with some of the world's top leaders because I have time. That's how I got to produce much better results for my team because I was free to coach them. And then you start to really like your job again. And it's like, wow, this this really works. So that's sort of the... The, the process that I've seen and that I've used, Dave. Uh,
0: and the research backs it up, too. I think back to oh, yeah. uh, first break all the rules from Gallup years ago. And and you mm-hmm. know at the time, it seemed really stunning thinking about, wow, the best managers are spending their most time with their best people. But it's mm-hmm. true. I mean, everything you just said, I mean, when you make an affirmative decision to really invest in those relationships, it's, it's huge. And I know, as I'm saying that, I'm thinking about the context of the world we live in right now. I mean, so many are struggling. So many leaders are struggling. The word burnout we see everywhere. You have an invitation to us just on getting a look at burnout and doing a little bit of an assessment around that. Uh, Would you mind sharing that for
1: our listeners? Would love to. Yeah. Whether it's um, people you're dealing with who are the energy drainers, the energy vampires in your life, whether it is just you know the pace of life has gotten so crazy. A lot of leaders I find think they're burned out, but they're not sure. Others don't think they are, but they've kind of lost their joy. They've lost their hope. They've lost the bounce in their step. So my team and I put together a burnout indicator. You can access it for free at burnoutindicator.com. I am not, I'll just qualify this. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not a psychologist, but I have burnout and coached and worked with thousands of leaders who've gone through that process. Um, So this is an unscientific, but hopefully very helpful way of helping you indicate your current level of fatigue and how sustainable it is. And most of us are living at an unsustainable pace. I was, it almost killed me. I burned out 15 years ago. I came back and want to help leaders. So you can go to burnoutindicator.com and uh, just take the test. only takes a few minutes. We will email you customized, personalized results, and you can do that for yourself, for your whole team, department, division, whatever. But we want to help you get well, and we want to help you live at a sustainable pace.
0: Carrie, thank you so much for all of this. We're going to get this linked up in the episode notes, and of course, I'll have it in this week's weekly leadership guide for everyone who receives that. One last question for you. You've had a tremendous amount of success in your career, especially the last 15 years since you made a lot of those shifts, and you've written some best selling books. You've talked with and had many of the top leaders on your show. I'm curious, especially over the last year or two. As you've done the research on this book, as you've seen the world navigate the pandemic, what's something that you've changed your mind on?
1: Oh, I could go in so many different directions. It has been a season of rethinking. So I'm going to pick an, an, a not obvious one, camping. And by camping, don't think glamping. <laughs> think like off the grid, you only carry stuff in on your back, no cell signal, no Wi-Fi. So for years, it was a problem. My family loved camping. I hated it. We did a lot of car camping where you kind of drive in with the SUV and just kind of park there in a campsite and it would always rain and I hated it. But what I realized, I hated it because my life was out of control because I hadn't mastered the principles that we've talked about today. And I wrote about in at your best. So I'll give you a sneak peek. We we close my new book at your best, how to get time, energy, and priorities working for you with a little chapter at the end that explains how I changed my mind about camping. So in 2020, again, in 2021, I went on a remote camping trip with my now grown sons and wife and absolutely loved it. They made me promise before I left that I wouldn't complain because I was so opposed to camping. It's like no complaining rules. Okay. I'm not complaining. I'm just trying not to die. That's what I'm doing. Okay, I'm not complaining. I loved it. It's so countercultural. But the reason when I look back on that, it's, it's, it's meaningful time with my grown sons. It is so quiet when you get out into the wilderness and the pace of life is so insane that it's actually becoming a bit of a joy to me. Do I like every aspect of it? No, I enjoy coming home, sleeping in my own bed with a real pillow. (laughs) (laughs) The food's pretty good though. On camping, we're cooking over wood fire, but I've changed my mind on camping. And part of that is, is pace. I live at a sustainable pace. Now I have time for meaningful hours, long conversations with the people closest to me. And we got rid of a lot of the noise that we've talked about in this interview. And it's not just about what I'm able to do. It's about who I'm becoming and really valuing that. And that would be my greatest hope for anybody who overcomes burnout, gets the book at your best, is that it's not just about what you're doing. Yeah, we'll get you 1,500 hours back of your life every year, about 1,000 productive hours every year. But It's really about what you do with those hours and who you're becoming, and I'm becoming different, and I hope better as a result of reclaiming that time. So that's what I've changed my mind about.
0: Kerry Newhoff is the author of At Your Best, How to Get Time, Energy, and Priorities Working in Your Favor. Kerry, thank you so much for your work.
1: Thank you, Dave, and thank you for yours.
0: If this conversation was helpful to you, several related episodes I'd recommend. One of them is episode 233, How to Make Deep Work Happen. Cal Newport was my guest on that episode. We talked about the importance of deep work and making time as leaders and professionals to be able to have the space to think to strategize. We recognize the importance, most of us, of doing that with colleagues and teams and in meetings, and yet a lot of leaders don't make that space to do that for themselves. And it's such an important competency for leadership. In episode 233, Cal and I talk about his research around deep work and how to really tactically do the things that will help you to make space to spend the time on what's most important so that you're able to get traction in so many areas. Also recommended is episode 332, The Scientific Secrets of Daily Scheduling. Daniel Pink was my guest on that episode. We talked about his research looking at the different patterns of the day and how our energy levels tend to show up. And There are some very common patterns that for most of us will help us get insight on how to utilize the day more effectively, not only when to do the deep work, but also when to interact with others, when to generate new ideas, and also when to turn it off and take breaks and the importance of doing that absolutely affected a lot of how I think about my schedule and my energy level after reading his book, episode 332, for more details on that. And then, of course, anytime we're limiting time with anyone, uh, it sometimes triggers conflict. And conflict, if handled well, can be a very healthy thing for both parties and for the organization. On episode 430, I talked with Amy Gallo on how to prepare for conflict. When we know conflict is coming or a tough situation has to occur or a tough conversation, uh, episode 4, I'm sorry, 530, uh, How to Prepare for Conflict will be a wonderful starting point for you on next steps to begin to get started. All of those conversations you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you haven't already, I'm inviting you today to set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. That's going to give you access to a bunch of things. Probably one of the most important benefits is to be able to search the library of episodes since 2011 by topic. You can find tons of other episodes on having difficult conversations and personal leadership Inside the free membership, plus a ton more, including my weekly leadership guide, which comes to you via email each week with the episode notes, details, and of course, many other resources that I think will be helpful to you in your leadership development. Plus access to all my book notes, my own personal library, all the free audio courses on the website. And a bunch more. CoachingForLeaders.com is where to go to set up your free membership, and you'll have full access along with everyone else. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Ashley Brundage to the show. She is going to be teaching us about the power in empowering differences. Join me for that conversation with Ashley. Have a great week, and see you next Monday.